everybody, and welcome to the Who's Who of SAU. This is a podcast that introduces faculty and staff from St. Ambrose University in ways listeners may not know, whether that be a hobby, what they do in their personal life, or what they do in their past. Today, I am joined by KALA-FM's operation manager, David Baker. Um, this would be the time in the podcast where I would ask your relation with St. Ambrose, mm. but I would just like to say thank you for allowing me this opportunity to have a podcast um yeah i i know who you are yeah yeah as they say yeah we know how to find you right so i guess just so just for posterity what do you do at saint ambrose so i'm the operations manager as you said of the radio station i uh, every aspect of the station uh except for some of the technical things i'm involved in um even some of the technical things sometimes uh when i uh they go wrong i have to i have to try to figure things out um, I came to St. Ambrose in 1989 in a different position. I was in the uh, Galvin Fine Arts Center working under Mr. Menno Cry, who was the director, then the director of Galvin Fine Arts Center. And I was the marketing coordinator and audience development manager of uh, Galvin Fine Arts Center for the Performing Arts Series. I did that from 89 to 90. And then my old uh, friend, uh, mentor, and teacher Father Charles Shepler grabbed me one day and said, would you like to come to work in the TV station? And I said, absolutely, get me out of here. Uh, not that I hated doing the, the Galvin Fine Arts Center thing, but uh, promoting a, a fine arts series was a very difficult uphill battle uh, and sometimes because people hadn't heard of a lot of the artists that were performing at Galvin. made it very difficult to promote I did a. I thought I did a bang up job. I got a lot of interviews and a lot of mileage. You know me in the media. Right. We had a lot of radio and television uh, spots going out there during that time. Um, Is that how Father Schepler <clears throat> sounded? That's how Father sounded. So if you want to, well, well, this is uh, a, a fine studio you've got here, Ryan. A uh, very good studio. Yeah, I, I could just hear him right now. So I came to TV, and I got to work with Duke again. And Duke was one of my teachers at St. Ambrose. And I was just really, really happy because, first of all, I was pretty young. I was 22 years old, 23. Duke, I was working with Duke. Um, in, I was in good health and young and, and, and doing all these things. And we, could, we were out shooting all sorts of video. We had lots and lots of projects to do all the time. And Duke was... Uh, really active and still is active. I mean, I can't slow him down at all, but we were out doing video productions. It seemed like every week we had something big going on back in, uh, back in the early nineties. And then I stayed there until we had a change in the structure in the communication department and a communication center was built that included at that time, the school newspaper, the TV station and the radio station. They were all in that. And then I uh, was appointed by the department chair, Dr. Dan Bozick, as the operations manager of the radio station. Duke was appointed operations manager of TV, which he already was. And, um, and then Alan Savell became the advisor about that same time of the school newspaper. So that's how it all evolved. I stayed, 
I stayed uh, in that position as to where I am today. So from 1993, July 1 on, uh, that's how long I've been here. Okay. So normally, you know, we have professors and they act in a specific capacity with helping students and everything. And you're a little bit different. You see like students you, and you still help students just like a professor would. But like how, sure. how is that different, do you suppose? Well, sometimes I'm I'm not the one who's the the person issuing the grade for a project. That's um, a double-edged sword in that uh, I think that sometimes it's a little frustrating because I think sometimes a student doesn't get uh, the the best review of something that they've done up here, um, and it just doesn't even matter what the class is. But uh, sometimes the students, I think the students' work is better than whatever grade that they get. Maybe there's some other reason why they got the grade that they get. I'm not going to get into the, right. another professor's uh, grading ideology, but um, and there's a, there's other times. People do terrible work here, and they get a great grade. <laughs> yeah. And so that's really the frustrating thing, because if I was the one issuing the grade, I know that there's a few people that would just have never, they would have never passed. You know, they would have never made it because they didn't know how, how to do what they're doing, and they just, they couldn't even do the most rudimentary things. So um, I do enjoy working with students, and I have for many, 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 many years, obviously. Okay. So uh, you're, like, from... Me taking like production cl the production class with Duke, it's very much you're the person that is in charge of what we need to get done in order for students yeah. to learn something. Like we do radio spots. For yeah, I kind of handle that audio section when we do 224. Sometimes, you know, I'm really out of rhythm right now. Uh, we don't have, uh, for the average listener, uh, COM 224 is radio and television production and now it's called digital media production and that's not being offered every semester and it's it's hard to get off that bus and you know because we've been doing that for uh, decades right with both the spring and the fall a couple of decades at least i think at one point it was just offered in the fall and we had so many students i think in 91 or 92 one of those we had we had almost 30 kids we had 20 Duke knows the number, but it's 27 kids, 28, something like that. It was it was an incredible number of students in the class. So we had to offer a second section. Yeah. But um, so that's what I handle is I, I help on the audio side of okay. things more. Uh, but I do love video. I mean, I miss I miss some of that. I miss uh, I miss going out and shooting stories and right. interviewing people Um I miss working with cameras. That's the part. I miss doing sports. I miss running a camera. Like, yeah. I'm pretty good under the basket. I'm a pretty good camera two operator, which uh, in, in our terms, uh, the for basketball games, that's the camera that gets the shot of the person that just made a that just made the shot because you want to see kind of a reaction right. of the player that just made it or somebody who fouled or you might get a cutaway of some crazy fan a grandma in the crowd with a grandma sweater on she's doing right, this little right. dance and uh the the listeners couldn't see that but i just did a little grandma dance here i uh, remember when <laughs> i would do i did that for duke my freshman year and i ran the camera next to the opposing team's bench and i would try to rile them up a little bit as as best i could you know if yeah. if, if ambrose was winning and then if they would end up losing. I'd feel awfully stupid. 
But, that's fun. Running camera, and that's the best opportunity. And I know a lot of students just think that's a sales point, but it is the greatest opportunity that we offer is to do live sports when we do live sports and because of COVID-19 it's been such a strange schedule everywhere you go I mean we've been playing football in the spring um but but anytime we do live sports radio or television get involved Uh, the television side is just really a lot of fun I know it's a lot to set up I get it I understand that but wow once we get going and I can't I certainly cannot take the place of a student. It would really not be right for me, unless there's an emergency or something like that. So that's why I haven't been running camera. It would be really inappropriate for me to come over and say, hey, you, and and, and push somebody out of the way. I want to run camera three or four on the floor and get some of these amazing shots of the, the uh, you know, these players up dunk, slam dunking yeah. it or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's fun. So you're a graduate of SAU. You well, that I am too. Yes. Yeah. So- are you a Quad City native? Then? I am. I am a Quad City native, and I I threaten sometimes just to to uh, just get in a the vehicle and pack it up and go somewhere else. But uh, I've kind of stuck it out here. I've got family around here, not a lot of family, but some family around here, and my parents are still here. Yeah. So I, I've I've stayed here in the Quad Cities, and the kids have gone to Bettendorf schools. I've I have two kids and a stepson. Um, who's, who's a little older. Um, and, and so we, he doesn't live with us, but, uh, we all kind of live together here in the quad cities and this has been my home. I, I grew yeah. up in Davenport. I saw Davenport. I'm 54 years old. I saw Davenport when it was, um, a different city, much different today yeah. uh, than it is today. There was no mall, no North park mall. That was all. That was a golf course. It was a later a motorcycle, motocross kind of a, a space out there. Uh, the grade school I went to, Harrison Elementary in Davenport out on 53rd. To get there, there was a little two-lane blacktop, you know. I, yeah. So it was very rural, a very rural rural community that was just urbanizing some. Uh, downtown Davenport was amazing nothing like it is today. And I know that we've got some economic development people that talk about the great things that are happening downtown. They're right. I mean, they're, they're not, I can't say they're wrong. It's much better than it was in the, let's say the 70, the late seventies and the early eighties. But wow, every store was downtown and the streets were packed with people. I can't, you can't, you can't even imagine this shoppers, on Saturdays and weekends, right before Thanksgiving, right around Thanksgiving and, yeah. and before Christmas, the stores were packed all downtown. Every we had every kind of store you could think of, from toy stores to all the major department stores. We even had local department stores, and uh, that was downtown Davenport. It was hustling and bustling. I I have I was very young, and I have memories of that. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm a lifelong Quad City resident. I could tell you if, if anything about the Quad Cities. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. But uh, so it, you talk about just growing up being around this neighborhood and, you know, you being an operations manager now. <laughs> yeah. So how did your interest in, you know, radio and TV develop? Well, I've always been interested in a, a couple of things. Be, first of all, being heard. Something being heard or something being seen that you're not near. I was always interested in that from when I was maybe two years old. I was amazed that the television station 
broadcast a signal from a studio. And I understood the concept even when I was that young. I thought, wait a second. The Ed Sullivan show, yeah. which I vaguely remember as a kid, that's live. That's happening right now in New York, some big city, New York City. And it's happening there. And then I'm watching it here. And it's through this, it comes through the air to this box. Yeah. And I understood the concept that it, it somehow got transmitted from there to here and then got sent to us over the air. And so we thankfully had a pretty decent television when I was a kid. And I always had access to radio. So I've been a consumer of this stuff. And I can remember... Yeah tuning around and breaking several radios. My my dad will attest to this day I broke all a bunch of radios. I broke the broke a nineteen sixty three Chevy car radio, playing with it, playing with all the push buttons, figuring out how the push buttons work, tuning around, trying to find all these different stations, um, remarking, making remarks at the stations. And this is me very young. I mean we're not, I'm not even five years old. Um, I complained at one point, I would have been three. We couldn't get the PBS at our house in West. We used to live in the West End of Davenport before we moved out north by where the mall is now. And we couldn't get it. We had rabbit ears on the antenna, which is rabbit ears, old old school term for mm-hmm. antenna. And I complained enough that my dad actually had to pay a TV repairman to come into the house. The tuning was off. There was a there was like a tuning compartment. For Channel 12, at that time, it was Channel 12, uh, K-I-I-N, Iowa City, which I used to, I was a first-generation Sesame Street viewer, too. So, like, before anybody knew what Kermit the Frog or Bert and Ernie or Big Bird, I was watching that stuff. First generation, 1969, I remember. The, uh, oh, I was amazed. I loved that stuff. I mean, I was was a little kid, you know, and these are uh, a big, bright, yellow, funny bird. Why wouldn't I watch that, right. you know? So anyway, we got the TV fixed, and voila, then I had public TV. So then I'm, I'm just flipping the channels around all the time, always tuning, 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 finding another one. What's this? Who's this on the air? You know, learning who the people were on the air. And by the time I was four or five years old, I knew who Jim King was, who was um, the anchor of, of uh, WQAD. I ended up later on working with him, which is just the most yeah. amazing thing. It's like... I. I know who you are. Yeah. I watched you from when I was a little kid. And, you know, I, I think some of the teachers, like Alan Savell kids with me, you watch too much TV, kid. You know, probably I could just hear him saying that. But I think it helped me. I remember watching reports about the Vietnam War. Yeah. More serious things, too. Right. I, re- I don't remember the moonshot. I mean, I'm not some... That was 1969. Yeah, I can remember some... Ed's, isn't that something I could remember? A little snippet of Ed Sullivan or Star Trek on right. on network TV, but I can't remember the moonshot. Yeah, I don't. I my mom said I was I was sleeping, I was napping when it was going on. But um, anyway, I can remember other events. I, I mean, we were a very in tune media household. I I mean, all the elections we had, we didn't have the internet back then. But man, did we have. Yeah. We had maybe one TV downstairs on ABC and another TV on CBS or NBC. We and and uh, I mean I I've been watching these elections since 1972 election. I remember vividly. 
So need, needless anyway, to say, so, yeah, just you, a lot of stuff. <laughs> needless to say, you've been you know very passionate about radio and TV. So oh yeah, and I keep was, talking about TV, but yeah, that's yeah. it. Was never in doubt that you wanted to do this. Well, then later on, I got a cassette recorder, and once I got a cassette recorder, and actually there are some early recordings, and a, a friend of mine who's a chiropractor, friend of our family. Uh, Dr. Denny Steerwalt, who's just a great guy, wonderful guy. I went over to his house one time. I would have probably been two and a half or three. And he had a microphone and a reel-to-reel machine. And I was doing recordings uh, there and introducing things. Yeah. And he said, you're going to go on to do this. He said, I said, I think you got some. I think you got something here. That's what he told yeah. my mom and dad. And I, I didn't think I was, I didn't, I didn't really put two and two together all through grade school, but I kept playing disc jockey at home. So I would grab whatever records my mom let me borrow. And I probably, you know, I don't know where I'd be today if I wasn't, couldn't play with these records, but I had a stack of 45. She must've had 150 or 245 records, these little singles. And I, I could introduce them. And so I did, I'd say. And now here's Dion and the Belmonts and, right. you know, a teenager in love. Yeah. And I used to, I made up my own call sign. I don't even know if there is a radio station like this, but I said WQLN. That was my station. Yeah. I made up a station. I don't know if there is a WQLN, but I made it up. And so I don't have any of these tapes. I think they all snapped. I listened to, I would record them and then play them back. And I would play the record and then come out of the record and give the forecast. Showers and thunderstorms tonight. Yeah. And I was just a little kid talking, yeah. you know. We did radio plays and things like that okay. that we made our own scripts up for. So when when you came to Ambrose, you know, was it just because it was local you wanted to come? Well, to... I wouldn't have come to Amber. I wouldn't have come to Ambrose if it wasn't for Duke Schneider. So fast forward a little bit, my love of broadcasting, radio, television, um, getting to know people that. Um, you know, a, a little bit about people that you can't actually see, uh, but they are their 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 image or their audio is transmitted through the air to to us. Um, that that love continued of this this broadcasting love, and I got into ham radio, which is not related to broadcasting, in that it's a different kind of broadcast service. Uh, a different kind of radio service. Amateur radio is a very much a person-to-person -person, uh, type of communication and non-commercial in nature. Uh, radio can be non-commercial, but it can be commercial too. So, so, but anyway, I became a ham operator late 1970s, and one of the first people I met at the Davenport Ham Club, meet, oh, they call him Ham for amateur ham. It was kind of a nickname. I met Duke Schneider at a Davenport ham club meeting. He was the secretary of the Davenport club at that time. And he still is. He still, yeah. I mean, we just, once, once these guys get these positions, they just keep them right. Yeah. Like people like me and Duke. And so Duke was the secretary and my friends and I kind of liked Duke. First of all, he was a little younger, mm -hmm. uh, more relate. We can relate with them a little more than some of these old codgers that were ham operators. What are you kids doing? Are you, are you, on right. you know, we like Duke and, um, then um, I'll tell you what really sold it is Duke invited the whole Davenport Ham Club to come over for a club meeting, and the club meeting was in the TV studio downstairs. Okay. So the whole Davenport Ham Club, so all these guys that are ham operators, 
came to this club meeting and here we all all were in the TV studio meeting and I was amazed. And I and Duke was then given a tour and showing us radio and TV. Late 70s, maybe 1980, something like I okay. I was just blown away. I I was 13 years old or 12 or and I I said, "Wait, wait a second. I asked Duke. I said, "This is unbelievable." I said, "What do these the students do this?" He said, "Yeah." Hmm. I said, "They what does it take to do it? Do they have to be here a while?" He goes, "No, you start right away." What? Yeah. What? And I couldn't even believe it. And I got home. I couldn't go to sleep. It was, I mean, I think our meeting lasted. It was a longer meeting because there was a tour after this. And those are like Monday meetings are still on Monday nights. They were Monday nights back then. And it was like seven o'clock meeting. I think the meeting got done at nine something. It was like 1030 at night. And I just couldn't go to bed. Yeah. And I kept telling my parents, I said, I'm going to go to St. Ambrose. I'm going to go to the school and I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this radio. Oh my gosh. I, I would. After that, I was so inspired. The racks and the, of the video monitors and things. I wanted to build things like that at home. I said, I want to build a, I want to have a rack, put my equipment in there, and and I never did. But yeah. but it's still, I, I I was so blown away. But it was that idea of the opportunity. Plus, then I got to go up to the radio station. They were on the air. There was a DJ playing some jazz records, and there was one doing rock. We used to have KSAR back then. KSAR was the AM on campus carrier current station carrier current sends a, a signal on am through the power outlets and he was playing rock records in there i don't remember who he was i don't i, I wish i would have known i wish i would have taken pictures of that day but I, I was my first experience up here but there was a dj on ksar and then there was a dj on kala and then i saw the upi machine and upi is united press international we had a wire service a teletype thing and it was going off. News. And, you know, and it was printing that stuff off for them to read on the air. And I thought, yeah. oh, man. So this place is totally connected. And they got two radio stations. Got an AM on campus serving the dorms and stuff. And I thought, this is pretty cool. But they're over the air. And they're running monaural over the air. Not stereo. 100 watts. And then... Um, did I listen to KALA after that? Yeah, probably some. But I remember I remember specifically being at the bus stop on a snowy, kind of cold Friday afternoon. And uh, the big popular thing back in the day was the boom box. Mm -hmm. So these kids all had uh, these these jam well a jam box was what really we called it back then the jam box so they had their jam box which was a, a portable stereo unit and they had they were they were walking around with them and i heard boom 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 this rhythm this rap and people talking you know and and uh it was kla and um i asked one of my friends i said I said, what is that? What is that you're listening to? And it was uh, usually African-American students had these things, these boom boxes. Mm -hmm. But they, I, I think they kept them in their locker. It's a wonder none of that stuff got stolen. But they, it was in, in the locker all day. And then when, you know, school's out, they get the boom box out mm -hmm. and uh, fire it up. Man, turn it up, too. They'd be yeah. out there. I don't know if that's allowed today, but it was great. They'd all be, everybody would be walking around with their boom, boom box. And I asked one my friend, I said, what are you listening to? What is that? What is that? And where do you get it? He goes, 
And he just looked at me like I was crazy. He goes, 88.5, man. And I thought, oh, that's KLA. Mm-hmm. So I got home. I hadn't really done much KLA listening, but then that's when I started listening a little. And I thought, oh, wow. I said, that's that place I went to. I said, they're really bold. They're really they're really bold to play music that other people aren't playing because they're playing urban and rap music and no other station is in the market. And it was kind of cutting edge because they had groups like the time uh, at that time, Prince, Mm -hmm. you know, people were playing the pop music from Prince, but not necessarily everything else. And then there were other up and coming R and B artists and things like that. And then I heard some jazz and some of the avant-garde jazz. I wasn't really, it didn't grab me, but I did a little KLA listening for a while before I even got here. So that's kind of right. my story later yeah, on. With I K- mean, finding us. You've you've talked to you know students you know up here. You know me being a scholar bee up here. You've talked about everything that you've done on campus and sort of how you've seen students come through and you know be super successful. How has Ambrose changed since you know you discovered that you know with just a, a chance meeting with Duke Schneider at a ham meeting we, to it's much better and um, we were great back in the day, but the opportunities are so incredible right now. Uh, the technology is just, it's the kind of thing that one could only dream of that what we can do. Uh, we used to have to rely on everything mechanical and analog to do things. We yeah. had to rely on machines to move tape through uh, transport devices, whether it was an audio card or a reel-to-reel, and then hope it would record properly and the heads were clean, the tape heads. Um the, the process is so much simpler and cleaner and we can do so much more, but it seems from a workflow standpoint, it seems like we are doing much more than we've ever done before. But at the same time, it's hard to keep up because yeah. we're, we've set such high standards, right? That's for this, but that's for radio. I mean, I think we're doing great work and we're such, we're award winning. Mm-hmm. We've won all sorts of awards. Like not only, uh, state, but we've run regional and national awards. Um, but I've seen the campus grow exponentially in a lot of ways. First of all, we are much more organized as a campus in the terms of student services. Yeah, We have a student center. We didn't have that when I was a student. We had the Rogalski Center. We have a decent library. We didn't have that when I was a student with the McMullen Library. Um, No offense to the way that they ran the library, but it was dark and dingy, in my opinion. It was no place to be proud of. It doesn't seem like, because was McMullen still like an academic building as well as a library? It was just a library at that time. But it was very dark in there, especially up in the stacks. That's where we put the books. That's where we called the books, the stacks, the bookshelves. Um, It was very dark and dingy. It was was not appropriate. for a good learning environment. Yeah. And now we got such a bright, wonderful open space. It's the center part of our campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the remodeling that has been done has been very precision and well done here. The, the aesthetics, the, the physical improvements have complemented how much more sophisticated we are as an institution. Um, academically, yes, we're, I think we're, we're, we're the same ethics and all of the same, Content is being taught, but we're just be, it's just being taught better. Yeah. No offense to my teachers. They did a great job. They, they did beyond the call of duty. Almost every professor I had here was just 
awesome. Just just be just wonderful. I have no complaints. Yeah. But we're doing things so much better now. We have uh, better studies that have uh, helped aid the faculty in presentations. We have technology that is un unparalleled with anything we had in the past. Um, but some things are still the same. Yeah. Like Shakespeare. Like uh, Chaucer, like like right. any of the uh, math problems. Math is math. It's always going to be five times five equals twenty five, yeah. right? That's a, there's always going to be some common threads that we we can talk to someone from two hundred years ago, and and ask you know talk about pi, not the pi we eat, but three point one four. So there's always going to be that in physics and, and and those things. But wow, the physical changes here. Do you see like that type of uh, ethos, you know, towards the future? Do you expect it to, you know, be the same towards the future? It, we're as an institution, St. Ambrose has been very smart, and I'm gonna coin a phrase from our outgoing president, Sister Joan Lashinsky. We've been nimble. I, she asked us to be nimble as an institution, meaning to change things that we have to do to, to and be quick about it. Not not quick, like immediate quick, but be nimble. Like efficient. Be, sort be efficient. Be be nimble. If, if something's not working, don't do it. Dr. Ed Rogalski, our former president, up through 2007. Ed was president from 87 to 07. Ed said, if we identify a program that's not working and it's not excellent, then don't let's not do that. If it's not excellent, let's not go there. Yeah. And I mean, that's in general what he said. I remember him saying that one day and I thought, wow, that's poignant. That means a lot because um, if, if something's not working, don't just keep trying to make it work. It's never going to work. And there are some things that have disappeared around here. I don't, I'm not going to go through a whole list of them, but there are things that just don't happen anymore. And, it makes sense for us not to go there and, and to do to do anything uh, here that would uh, not help the students. I mean, th- we're here for the students, number one. That's yeah. the thing. That's the thing I've seen the biggest change in is student services, like I said, and the way we treat our students. Students are, are more, it's a, it's a student-centered campus in that we're very concerned about that physical, educational, mental, religious, the well-rounded student. I mean, every part of the student is, is really been looked at. I don't think we've, I don't think we were that sophisticated back in the eighties. I mean, we had a little gray house that was out where Cosgrove is. And, uh, right in front of Cosgrove was this little gray house. And that was the building that was supposed to handle all that because counseling was in there Hmm. and nurse Nancy, who, who I just love. And she's still here. And she was the nurse when I was a student. So, uh, but nurse Nancy was, was in there and our counseling center and they did great work. Don't get me wrong, but there wasn't any room for them to be confidential because everybody would see somebody going in there. It's like, why is, why is John Doe going in there? Why is Jane Doe going in there? Um, the Dean of students was in there and, and very limited other, it's a little tiny house. I mean, what can you put in a little house? And that's what they used to have. And it didn't look, it was not becoming for a university. So We've increased, I mean, just the size of what we can do. And then this wellness and rec center mm-hmm. is unbelievable. I mean, I just. It's very much an asset of the university, I feel. It like. is. It is. And our 
our board did a very good job of looking ahead and identifying, okay, what can we do to pivot ourselves for the future? Um, but looking at the past, I think there's a few characters in Ambrose history that don't get enough credit. And one of those in particular is Monsignor Sebastian Menke, who doesn't get talked about a lot um, nowadays. But, but Father Menke, Monsignor Menke, thought ahead with the board at that time and the, and the faculty to build what is Cosgrove Hall. And without that building, we wouldn't have the dining hall and all of those dorm rooms. And I'm sure that cost St. Ambrose College at that time a pretty penny to build that. And also it was, you know, low interest rates, but I'm sure we, it went into debt. I'm sure it was a, we made a lot, we had a big loan for that thing, but he went for broke and did that. And then the Hayes Hall edition Mm -hmm. and guess what other building? The one we're in right now, Galvin Fine Arts Center, is a Monsignor Menke thing. So without him, there's, I think, three places on this campus. We would have gotten eventually, we would have gotten around to it, but he he really went ahead at a time, and he didn't know what was going to happen with interest rates with Jimmy yeah. Carter in the 70s and how things were going to go sky high uh, property value-wise and construction-wise, but very, uh, very forward thinker. Monsignor Menke was so. Yeah. I'm really glad. I know a little. I've got. I'm glad I got to meet him. I never got to tell him that that I identify. I personally identified that. I don't hear anybody else say that. I've never heard of him until now. Well, I've never. I've never heard anybody give him the credit that I give him, and that thank for thanks to him, and my friend Doctor Backrow. Thank thanks to him for the things he did. Um, Backrow was. Uh, from Kinesius College. He was the president of Kinesius. And Dr. Backrow sounded a bit like this. That's my imitation of Dr. William J. Backrow. Okay. David. Yes. Uh, and his secretary was Jeanette Wells. And I, I just miss both of them. And I miss I miss Dr. Backrow and his wife, Mari. And uh, Dr. Backrow was always very, very kind to me and a uh, really great guy. But he... Uh, was one known for a couple of things. He was money centered, not that he worshipped money or anything like that. He might have, I don't know, but he was about fundraising, and he brought the concept of fundraising and strategic planning to St. Ambrose for the first time. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. He's the one that really started the the after Mankey. So there was this little period. It was Father Mankey up to 1973. Coke John, Father Coke John took over as temporary president for several months while they searched for another president. They found Dr. Backrow, who was friends with the Motorola people, too, uh, served on their board of directors at Motorola. That's kind of a big deal yeah. to do that. And uh, But he came in and said, I think we should do some fundraising here. And one of the things he worked on was an annual fund. And I can't remember how much they raised, but it was an amount like $375,000. And they advertised that in a press release. I think I found an old press release. And I started laughing. I thought, that's nothing today. Yeah. If someone put on, we raised $375,000 at a school. It's like, well, that's that's good. But is that going to help you? Well, back then, that was a ton of money. Yeah. And so he also began the concept of having an endowment, which was as a rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. And without him, I don't think we would have that. And then he was really sharp 
in that he brought smart people around him. And he was so lucky to have Ed Rogalski as one of his vice presidents. Yeah. And Rogalski has a spirit of uh, good fiscal sense, but he also can make a friend with about anybody and get through things and be and you know and be their friend yeah. through the process and uh at least they think he's the friend right. <laughs> and uh but i i gotta tell you ed rogalski is another great person that uh i know we give credit to because he's got the rogalski center but there's a lot more than that that he did he he went through some some of the rocky times here because we had a little enrollment bump in 1986 or so um and it was it was tough we had yeah. a couple of years that were tough. There are a lot of schools have gone belly up that mm -hmm. just didn't make it. But we got some smart people and smart people today that have kept this thing afloat. Um, it's in the realm of higher education. It's not easy to yeah. to keep it going. And I just don't know how they do it. And they I know sometimes it's really easy for the uh, faculty to and staff to look at budgets and say, oh, that's not fair. They cut my budget and. You know, there's there's nobody who gets up in the morning and says, well, I can't wait to start cutting the budget of the yeah. blank department today. But we've got to do these things to save money. And maybe we were spending too much money on widgets before. Yeah. Yeah, I, whatever widgets are. I'm just saying maybe, and I could use KALA as an example. You know, maybe we spent too much money. We had a news wire service at yeah. one time. And maybe, maybe that wasn't a good investment and you can you can talk to some people about like what they don't like about the campus or what yeah. what they think sh people should do and you know I, I hear that you know a lot and it's like yeah i agree with you but i think there's a lot more that goes on that we don't see and probably will never see yeah so, well and i think we, t we take things for granted that too and i think i took things for granted as a student too and and assumed an awful lot and i underappreciated people who really worked for my my best yeah uh, outcome all the time and not say I, I i dislike them or anything but i just don't didn't appreciate them at the time but um i appreciate the people i work with uh almost everybody here i think is on board for the same cause we want to help the students otherwise i don't think we'd be here because this is not a get rich quick scheme yeah. i can tell you that one right right now uh, coming here i I will. I can. Re can I reveal a secret on this podcast? I sure. I think I can say this. I can't. I'm not going to say what I made, but I'm going to say what my predecessor made before I came to St. Ambrose in 1989. I think it's safe for me to say. Yeah. That. I, yeah. He made eleven thousand three hundred dollars a year. That doesn't sound like a lot. That was, you know what? After taxes, that's. You know what? You probably can't go to the movies on that very often. Um, I don't know where he was living. But for even in 1989, 11,300 a year, that wasn't very good. So you know, know the salaries here. We just we're not able to pay people a lot of money in yeah. a private school. It's never been that way. But um, I felt good saying that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my my predecessor, I won't even say his name to protect him, but he's a dear, wonderful person. <laughs> yeah. He taught me what to do yeah. here when I yeah yeah. So. I know you've told us you worked at WQAD. Yeah. Like your your time, your very short, right after graduation, your very short time yeah. away from this institution, right, right. and then you came back. And I know when I was talking to you about being a guest on this podcast, you said that you were too young to sort of work 
here at the time that you oh were. yeah and it just i just thought that was really interesting if you want to go into i that. i just well it's it's hard when you're 20 21 years old 22 years old to do all these things um you see people around you having families and getting married and having babies and all and 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 uh there's always this sense uh at graduation time this time of the year in the spring you hear all these students that say i've got a job lined up i'm gonna be making sixty-eight thousand a year got it all lined up and you know the other guy goes i got one lined up too and a girl says i got one lined up and i'm gonna be making seventy-five thousand. and they all turn out to be marketing jobs and yeah. they love there's a lot of insurance companies that love to grab young college students and they think they want them out there selling whole life or whatever and yeah. that's the salary and maybe that's what you make for a few weeks but by and large, it's a tough uphill battle, especially in communication, what you make a year. Yeah. Um, but you can do it. You can make it. And uh, and I'm not saying that people aren't walking out of here uh, with accounting degrees, making good money. I'm sure they are. But uh, there are a lot of people. I knew one guy in our department, our, our field, he was removing asbestos. He told us what he made. And I was like, man, you're making more than me. Yeah. I was a little jealous, but I also thought... But at least I'm not root. No offense to the asbestos removers that are listening, but at least, at least I'm not 22 years old and out there with an asbestos hazmat suit on, right. removing asbestos right. with a communication degree, yeah, which has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, being I was a little young, I didn't know everything there was to know. Uh, it, you couldn't tell me that then, uh, because I thought I knew a lot more than I knew. But uh, I'm I'm thankful I went and I did what I did, and I worked under some good people at WQAD, and I got to meet all sorts of people, and I kept an open mind when I was there. And I'm also thankful they didn't hire me full time to stay on, yeah. because I would have never come over here and open up the other opportunities here and, and to work with the students. But I got to work. I I worked uh, for qu- quite a while, about forty hours a week plus. Um, but I was temporary part time. That's what they called me. But I was, I was working forty plus hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would, um, I did that for quite a while. But then, I, I ended up working for Channel Eight for about five years. And uh, in that time, the the hours just kept tapering off. And then I started doing Sunday nights. So I was it was kind of my ritual to start doing Sundays over there. And I thought, what else am I doing on a Sunday? And then what I would do. This was my routine. When I was done with the newscast at 1030 over there and they, you know, MASH was on and it was time to go home, um, I would come over here and the students were working on Dateline. We used to do Dateline on Monday mornings or Monday afternoons, Monday afternoons. But the students were working on Dateline late at night. So I'd always come down here and I'd always find the antics of the students. Sometimes back then they used to turn the studio lights on and things like that and I'd come down here and I'd. I was working at Ambrose already at that yeah. point. I did things simultaneously for a while. But, yeah, I was awful young, awful young starting at St. Ambrose and managing students who were like my age virtually. And it's difficult to be 22 and to manage someone who's 21. Right. Uh, there's that, that respect factor is not there. But you know what? We all settle in and, and, and get to a position where, where we are. And people understand. Yeah. Uh, 
but the most the most wonderful place about thing about this place is the students. That's it. That's number one is our students. Yeah, and I, you mentioned how it was kind of intimidating, you know, trying to figure your own way out in in life, you know, after graduation, and it's intimidating, you know, yeah. as students, you know, grow up through here and come through here. You know, it's intimidating for me because, you know, next year I'm going to be in, in those shoes. And I, I yeah. guess with, with this major, you know, you, it's very common for people to, you know, move on and to move, you know, in, in different directions and different fields. So I guess as long as you just find just a community and, and be thankful that you're part of a community that's very well, just open. Well, yeah, and I spent a lot of time with the school paper. Yeah. And... I was editor of that reluctantly from my sophomore year. I didn't really want to, I, I just wanted to be the news editor. That's yeah. all I wanted to be. I didn't want to be the editor in chief. I didn't want to handle all the business stuff and billing the advertisers and all these things. I think it made me a stronger, better person. I got to learn a lot more about St. Ambrose in that position. Um, I got to, I got a little nosy about, you know, how things operated here and understood how our budget operated and things like that, which helped me understand budgets in the future for the school paper. Back then we had a advisor, but they kind of let us run things a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> I felt it was more autonomous, you know, and we, uh, so I did the school paper and I did that from, uh, 1980, well, 84 all the way to the end. And I, you know, hindsight, there were a couple of points I probably should have just said, you know what, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And I'm just going to concentrate on radio and TV stuff where I've already got a home too. Mm -hmm. But I stuck it out and I did it. And I have lifelong friends that from the school paper that right. were just wonderful people. A couple of them have passed away at this point that were uh, worked with me hand in hand. Uh, and just were wonderful people to, to know. And it became a true family. Uh, it was called the Ambrose Magazine back then. But we were, it was a school paper in and of itself. But but what a family. I mean, we'd be up up all night, up all day. Uh, all, all ranges of ages and ethnicities and different different kinds of people, male, female, we all worked together for a common cause, and that's, right. we had, we had to get a paper out, mm -hmm. and it was all manually done too. Much, I think it was much more difficult. Yeah, uh, you guys make it look easy <laughs> right now. I know it's still hard. Yeah. But, well, yeah. Uh, David Baker, thank you for joining me on my podcast today. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope I don't get in too much trouble. No, for everything. It, it's it's always interesting <laughs> listening to like stories because you just have so many just about everything. I, I, that's and. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't say anything too earth shattering today, but you know, I think if there's anything that we can take away is just how important the students are. And that's, what's kept me here all yeah, these years. For sure. All right. Well, this, I'm your host, Ryan Sandness, and this has been the who's who of SAU.